Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. You may have heard her when she read her poem at Bill Clinton's inauguration, or you may have read her memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, or from her collection of poems, Just Give Me a Cool Drink of Water, and singing and swinging and getting merry like Christmas. <laughs> She's uh, six feet tall. Will you please welcome Dr. Maya Angelo to West Coast? Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Well, I thank you. I have been listening to Guy Johnson, who, male or female, white, black, Asian, Spanish-speaking, Native American, Aleut, Hawaiian, wouldn't want to be his mother. <laughs> hey! 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 a long time. He's good. He's very good. And, uh, and, and so you taught him well, and you taught him how to be polite. Yes. Well, he, he, he has that. He has a, he's intelligent. Uh, only nitwits are, are un, unpolite or apolite. That's what That's my mother taught me. Yeah. <laughs> apolite is good, too. Uh, it never stops. Do you want him on stage with you? Here? I love it. Yeah, right. I, I, I'm here because of him. He thinks he's here in this world because of me, and I'm grateful to God to have been the mother to this giant. The, uh, I have become myself uh, into myself because of him. He was born to me when I was 17, and, and I loved him, and I was not in love with him. So a lot of parents make that mistake. They fall in love with their children and then can't see their children. They only see themselves in the children, and, and, and they squeeze and, and manipulate. And I loved him. I love him. And I wanted to, I knew I had a black boy in a white society, and I knew how dangerous that was. I'm very lucky to have been intelligent that long ago. So I taught him. I told him everything I knew. Uh, I told him in words he could comprehend, and I started teaching him poetry, African-American poetry, uh, all poetry, Asian, and it taught him haiku, right, everything. And um, about two or three years ago, maybe three or four years ago, uh, Guy Johnson has had a series of, uh, of operations on his spine. and. Uh, in fact, had had the, the same uh, accident which uh, uh, crippled uh, Christopher Reeve, uh, the same uh, vertebrae were crushed. This was when you were in Africa, That's many right. years ago. But this is, the, it never went away. I mean, it's, so um, he had, a, I think, about the 10th, 9th or 10th operation. And I was down in Miami, and his wife and family were there. And the operation was a success. I came back, went home in, to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. 
About two weeks later, 10 days later, Guy Johnson called me. He said, Mom, um, look, do you remember that poem, Invictus? I said, of course. But when he said it, I remembered teaching it to him when he was about eight years old. And this little black boy would walk around the house, his chest stuck out like a partridge. <laughs> out of the night that covers me black as a pit, from pole to pole. He asked me, do you remember? I said, of course. He asked me to say it. So I said the poem, out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. I went on to do the rest of the poem. He said, thanks, Mom, you forgot a verse. <laughs> <laughs> so he reminded me, and then he asked, would I say the poem with him? The whole poem, I said, yes. And he said, use your cadence, I'll follow you. So I said the poem, and when I finished, he said, thanks, Mom, I got to go now. They just finished taking over 100 stitches out of my back. <laughs> poetry. <laughs> the love of it, and the love of your child teach the children poetry. Everybody from Edgar Allan Poe to, to Paul Lawrence Dunbar to, to uh, Janice Mary Kitani to James Cagney to Guy Johnson to Maya Andrew, teach the children. Edna St. Vincent Millay, you have to see Millay. This little woman, white, uh, wan, beautiful word, wan. In the South we call it puny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, about to become the recluse she did become, this little woman wrote conscientious objector. She said, I will die, but that is all I will do for death. <laughs> he has business this morning. I hear his horse's hooves on the stall. He has business this morning, business in the Balkans, business in Cuba, but he must mount by himself. I will not give him a leg up. I'm not in his employ. I will die, but that is all I will do for death. With his horse's hooves on my chest, I will not tell him where the black boy lies hidden in the swamp. Brothers and sisters, the keys and the plans to the city are safe with me. Through me, you will never be overthrown, for I shall die, but that's all I will do for death. <laughs> now you see, if the children knew that early on, understood something about courage, it is the most important of all the virtues, because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. You can't be consistently fair, consistently kind, consistently generous, consistently uh, just, and certainly you can't love consistently without courage. We seem to live in a time where fear is a driving force and encouraged to be uh, the driving force of our time. It's it's uh, uh, the only thing we have to use now is fear itself might be a speech that I might hear <laughs> someone give. Yes, but you see, but, uh, but uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and used and what uh, Churchill meant because the statement did not really come from the 20th century. It had been said years earlier by, Elaine, by Locke, John Locke. But um, the, what they were saying is if... Americans don't fear. It is not given to us to fear. I used to sit in the, on a restaurant on the Champs-Élysées, uh, um, on the Veneto, um, 
Veneto, uh, Via Veneto in Rome. And I said, we took it, people walked down the street, and I said, that's an American. It wouldn't, it wouldn't matter what color or what race. Just say something, yes, I can. I can be the worst in the world. I can enslave people. I can kill them. Yes, I can. I can be the best in the world. I can be the most generous in the world. Yes, I can. That's a, and the, the fear, we have been fed fear by fear doctors. I can't stand it. I turn off the television because it used to be cars and at one time even other things. But suddenly, all the commercials are by uh, pharmaceutical companies. And there's one, I don't know if you all have seen this one. I haven't spoken to Guy about it. It's with a, a great singer and actor, Della Reese. It, she comes out with some singers, and they're singing, Avandia, Avandia, Avandia. And then she says, I know you need it. This is not a, she's not making a joke. She says, but in, I tell you, I use it, and I, I exercise, and I stay on a diet, and I take my Avandia, and you should too. Doesn't say for what. <laughs> Honest to Pete. The most amazing thing. So you can see people calling in, getting all these things. If you don't have it now, you will. And so we, we end up in their employ. Absolutely. In the employ of, uh, we, we lose something essential to ourselves. We lose some part of the alma. And it sounds different in Spanish. It does. You lose some part of your soul, of your essence, if you give in to fear. I mean, it doesn't mean not be cautious. Certainly be cautious. It'd be a fool not to be cautious. Be aware of where you are. I mean, you don't walk into a lion's den unless you're David or the three, uh, you know, Meshach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego. No, I mean, you don't do. Guy, guy was referring to Larry and uh, Mo and uh, Curly. No, I know. I knew what it. You know. See, sometimes what you have to learn is you don't pick it up, you don't lay it down. <laughs> You, um, you're, you're, uh, th this book of yours is filled with very moving stories about the connection between life and courage and, and food. And there is, uh, uh, and for instance, the, the story that you tell of attending a dinner in London with a uh, painter uh, related to a famous psychiatrist and another painter with the, the same name of an 18th century writer, which you could probably <laughs> decipher. Yes, yes. Um, and, a, and, and someone else, and uh, at Sonia Orwell's house, you were, in, you were invited in uh, to be a guest. Yes. Uh, Sonia Orwell, the widow of George, was a friend of mine, and friendly to Guy in, at one time in his life. And uh, she had me over, and I met those people in the drawing room, and they were very, very, and just very, very, very. <laughs> and, uh, and they seemed to be all right, though. I mean, I had met some Betty Bettys before. So, <laughs> so uh, we went down to the dining room, which was on the ground floor. And um, we, were, we were served a beautiful onion tart. And then the 
one of the fellows said to me, uh, asked me, what do you think of modern, what do you think of modern music, modern composers? So I said, well, there are a few I, I like. I like Sate. And, and one said, well, what do you think of um, another American? So I said, I don't, I don't think of him at all. So he said, uh, oh, what do you mean? You mean to tell me you don't know that he's the most avant-garde and so forth? And I said, no, I don't get it. I mean, I remember being a young dancer in New York, having a six-year-old child working at, at Me Metropolitan Life Insurance and studying dance and, and saving my money and studying with Pearl Primus and Martha Graham and ah, and um, saving dimes so I could go to he see this man's dance company and hear the, the, his partner's uh, music. And they came out onto the stage. I finally got something way up in the way up in the in the clouds. And I was waiting. It was a dollar thirty-five cent the ticket. And that that was a lot of uh, subway rides, you know, that I gave up. So I, the fellow came out onto the stage with a stagehand and put a tape recorder on the stage. And they both walked off. And suddenly the thing began. We heard tick. nothing. Tick. Nothing. Tick. So I, this went on for about five minutes, <laughs> and I looked at the at the program and said, "The electric light on the corner of Thirty Fifth and Ninth Avenue." <laughs> so, what? <laughs> what? And people were sitting there. <sighs> and I remembered a story I told Guy from the time he was that big. My grandmother told it to me. I, in Arkansas, in a village in Arkansas, smaller than this studio, my grandmother, who was a, a daughter of a, of a slave, ex-slave, she said there was a, was a king. And the king was so mean, people in the town hated him. And so somebody brought him, so two men came up to him and said, we got, we got some cloth, we want to make you a suit. It's the most beautiful cloth you've ever seen, but only very intelligent people can see it. <laughs> and, the king, and the king said, well, let me see it. And my grandmother said, and sister, they shook out nothing. <laughs> and the king said, well, they, they asked him, can you see it? You have to be very intelligent. He said, of course I see it. I love it. So he said, well, then look at this. This week we're going to make your underclothes out of that. And here we're going to make you some shoes and socks and a hat and a tie. <laughs> and he said, all right. So they said, we'll come in a month and give you a fitting. And in the month they came back, they said, sister, they didn't have nothing in them boxes. <laughs> nothing, nothing. And they asked the king, okay, put this on. Is that too tight? He said, no. <laughs> and the whole town got to know that this, this king was going to have clothes so beautiful that you had to be very intelligent to, to, to understand and see that cloth. And on the day the king was going to walk out, my grandmother said, sister people lined up on both sides of the road. And the king came out, and they said, now put this on and put this on. And, and they said, how do you feel? He said, I feel good. So they said, all right, you ready to go out? He said, sure I am. I'll see who really is intelligent. And he walked out of his door, out of his house, and on the street, and the people said, oh, what 
beautiful suit. And somebody said, I like the lapels. And someone else said, oh, you see how that jacket is cut. Mm-hmm. Until one little child said, Daddy, the king ain't got no clothes on. My grandmother told me that at least twice a year. I told it to Guy Johnson. There is no way on earth I'm going to say I understand the thing if I don't. No way on earth. So, so this was... A this, this was a piece of uh, music by uh, John Cage. <laughs> Smarty. And, 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 and you were, and you, were uh, you were chastised for holding that belief. Yes, the, the people. I, when I said John Cage, uh, he's a he's a, a, a scalawag, and 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 I and he the king ain't got no clothes on. <laughs> and so, they said, "Why you are stupid? I can't believe that." They said to Sonia Orwell, how can we hold, possibly, hold a conversation with someone so very, very stupid? <laughs> so I got up. Sonia went in and brought out the, this beautiful fresh pork roast, a ham, fresh ham. And I got up and got my purse and walked out. And she said, oh no, Maya, they love you. They wouldn't take this, these licenses with you if they didn't love you. I said, they love me? No, I love me. Let me show you how much I love me. So I walked out. But the reason I told this story is I got outside. I thought I wasted all that time with those numbskulls. And then I thought, no, I didn't. I had an excellent onion tart. <laughs> That was it, and, and I taste very carefully so I can tell what's in it. I knew how to make that. So I, it, the story was well, well told, and I think I mentioned the other things that she had. Yeah, and the, uh, the, you had this great exit line, I'm sorry, I have to be in Bangkok in half an hour. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I still use that. <laughs> then when you were here in San Francisco, uh, it, was in, it was in San Francisco, right? you learned how to, uh, you worked in a Creole restaurant for a while? Yes, over on, on Sutter Street at that time in the Fillmore. Um, I was about 18, maybe between 17 and 18. Guy was a few months old and I found a rooming house with, with two rooms and cooking privileges down the hall. And the, a sign in the, in the window said, Cook Wanted, in, in the, on, on Sutter Street. And I wasn't a cook. I mean, I didn't know. My mother was a great cook. And the man who worked in her house was a great cook, good cook. And my grandmother was supreme. Uh, but they would let me sous chef. I could string the beans and I could pick and wash the lettuce. I could do all that, but uh, this, the sign said $75 a week. My God, <laughs> could there be that much money? <laughs> my room was $10 a week. Oh, my Lord. So I went in, and I said, I, I'm, I'd like to apply for that job. And the woman said, asked me, can you cook? I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> she asked, can you cook Creole? I said, that's all I know how to cook. <laughs> 
so she told me the working hours, and then I you know, used a lot of things. She said that on Sunday, we didn't have to come in. I said, I'm glad of that, because I like to go to church on Sunday, which was true. But she, she, I got her with that. She said, you're a Christian. I said, well, I'm trying to be, which is still what I say today. And that was, I'm 76 now, so that was all those uh, 60 years ago almost. And I am trying to be a Christian. Trying to be a Christian is like trying to be a Jew or a Buddhist or Zen Buddhist or, or uh, a, a, a Muslim. I mean, you, you don't have it. You work at it, you know. Uh, I'm always amazed when somebody walks up to me and says, hello, I'm a Christian. I think, already? <laughs> <laughs> really got that? Ah, that's weird. They must have cut in line somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I know, and, and, and didn't tell me. <laughs> so, but I knew that there are these uh, uh, automatic Christians and automatic Jews and automatic Buddhists and Muslims. I mean, I'm just, I'm that, and I'm not moving, and I got it. So don't try to take it away from me and show me a better way. Uh, wait. Uh, so uh, you, you got to, to cook Creole. Yes, I did. My, the man who worked for my mom, Papa Fords, told me, uh, he said, you already know how to cook rice, and I did. I learned rice in, in Arkansas. Arkansas pe black people eat rice in, in my little town. Uh, when people got together and said things like, Brother Hudson's daughter is going to marry Sister Phillips' son, and, you know, she went to Meharry Medical School, and she's a real doctor by now. And so people say, mm-hmm, but can she cook rice? <laughs> so I had rice. And Papa Ford said, put tomatoes, onions, bell pepper, garlic, and celery in it, a little hot pepper, and you got Creole. It's true. <laughs> I did it. I then they increased the business in the restaurant and kept the job as long as I wanted it. Uh, Dr. Maya Angelou's cookbook, Hallelujah, is filled with these stories. And there, there's one uh, in which, and, and it's a story that you often tell about your mother looking you at, on the street. Here in San Francisco. In San Francisco. And yes, um, by this time I was about 20. And uh, Guy and I lived in another, I mean, in an, another area. My mother had just bought a 14-room house on Fulton Street, and she'd put her heavy, thick, gothic, carved furniture in there. I mean, mohair on top of mohair and things <laughs> like that. And, uh, but the kitchen was bright. She used to come at least once or twice a week and pick up Guy Johnson and take him off for hot dogs and ice cream. But I went to her only once a month, and, and I agreed. We had an agreement. And she would cook some, my, one of my favorite dishes. And that day I went to her, and she had made red rice, a favorite of mine. Still, it makes me, my knees get weak. <laughs> uh, so we ate, she cooked the chicken, roasted dry, roast dry roasted a capon, and uh, a little green salad. But the red rice, I just loved it. And we finished eating, and she was all dressed, so she was going out although she would dress for me, just for me. And I raised this person dressing for him, and he makes the, uh, the effort to dress for his children and for his 
certainly for his wife. The, um, my mother, we started down Fulton Street and we had almost reached Fillmore. We were about halfway up the block between Steiner and Fillmore. And my mother said, baby, uh, you know something? I think you're the greatest woman I've ever met. <laughs> I looked down, my mother was very pretty. And she had diamond earrings and makeup. And <clears throat> she said, um, you're very intelligent and you're very kind. And those two uh, values rarely go together. Um, I've come to disagree with that, of course, later on. But I know what she meant. She meant intellectually. <clears throat> and uh, she said, um, Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, and my mother. She said, you belong in that category. Give me a kiss. <laughs> so I gave her a kiss, and she jaywalked across the street <laughs> and got into her car. <clears throat> I wouldn't accept money from her. I wouldn't accept a ride from her. And she agreed with that. But I walked across the street and waited for the 22 streetcar. And I got onto the streetcar. I can remember it till this very moment. The time of day, the sunlight coming through the windows on the wood in the back of the streetcar. And I thought, suppose she's right. <laughs> suppose I really might become somebody. Just imagine. She's very intelligent. And she says she's too mean to lie to anybody. <laughs> so suppose she's right. Maybe I should stop some of the things I'm doing, like cursing and smoking and drinking. Well, I, I, maybe I will become somebody. I did stop cursing. <laughs> so now, 56 years later, you, you, you remember that moment as if there were no intervening time, but in those 56 years, you've You've written, you've become world uh, famous, you've been in, in uh, great social movements of our time, you've made something of, of your life. And <laughs> yeah, and, and looking back, I mean, I mean do, you, do you see it as astonishment or just a natural outcome of your mother's prediction or of fate or of good luck or? This fella. I started this saying I love Guy Johnson. I wanted to be able to answer him. I wanted him to see me as intelligent. I wanted him to see me in libraries and in bookstores. And so I took him to libraries and bookstores. And here in San Francisco at the museum, on Saturday, there used to be a program where all kids could go on Saturday, and they could smudge paint or something, and they got to walk around with a docent and see paintings. I did that every Saturday. Guy went to the museum. It, it was a babysitting uh, ploy for me, but also a, a way for him to see art. And if you go into his home now, you'll see art, wonderful art. Um, so when we moved to New York, and we were with friends in New York, and Saturday came, he asked the kids his age, Barbara and, and John, he, he asked, Okay, where, when do we go? Where's the museum? <laughs> they said, what? He said, let's go. It's about time for us to get to the museum, isn't it? <laughs> so, 
So all, the, all along, I, I speak a number of languages, a number, and so did this man. He finished high school in Egypt, in Cairo. His Arabic used to be very, very good. It's, it's okay. <laughs> um, his Spanish is fair. Mine is excellent. <laughs> Uh, but all the, just to continue to show him, human beings are more alike than we are unalike. Look, this belongs to you. Look, this is Aristotle. He belongs to you. Look, this is um, Carmen McRae. She belongs to you. Look, this is Oi Kinzaburu and Kobo Abe. They belong to you. C Carlos Fuentes belongs to you. Look, look, Singer belongs to you. Look at it. Have them. Put them inside yourself. Make you strong. And so that's how I grew up. And uh, <laughs> Dr. Maya Angelou belongs to us. Yes, I certainly do. All right. Thank you so much Thank for being here. Thank you. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here. And we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.